Hey, I just want to take a moment and thank the church, use the church. You know, three weeks ago we celebrated the partnership that we have between Christ Church and Urban Impact Foundation. And we've been partnering in the gospel for now 13 years. And we've impacted thousands of people's lives on the north side of, on north side of Pittsburgh together. And I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for your faithfulness, for your prayers, for your giving, for your support. And during that time of our celebration, my son Nathan was here and he was preaching. I want to thank you and encouraging him. But he talked about an open door, the, op- the open door of opportunities that we have as a church to preach and teach and communicate and demonstrate the gospel. And I want to share one of those opportunities with you. Urban Impact will be doing a Christmas show on December 5th and 7th. And I think there's something on the screen there. And I want to encourage you to come. Thousands of people have come to this event, and it really is impactful. Bring this friend, come join us, be part of it. But even if you can't bring any friends, you come, because you're going to see some of the fruit of your prayers and of your support. And come join us on December 5th and 7th in the evening. And again, thank you for your faithfulness. We're continuing our series on giving, and the title of our sermon is called The Joy of Generosity. Now, I've noticed something about life, and in life, I've noticed that people who are thankful and grateful are people that usually are people who are joyful and they're generous. But people who are unthankful and ungrateful are people that are usually not happy and they're not generous. Well, I remember hearing a few years ago, Chuck Swindoll, he he was reading a great piece, a piece entitled Blessed. And I thought this morning what we, what we should do is just read this together as a way of reminding us all about how blessed we are as the people of God and people who live in the United States so that we might respond with thankful hearts, understanding that all that God has done for us. Okay? Would you join with me? Let's read this together. If you own just one Bible, you are abundantly blessed One-third of the world does not have access to even one. If you woke this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than a million who will not survive this week. If you have never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation, you are ahead of 500 million people around the world today. If you attend a church meeting without fear of harassment, arrests, torture, or death, you are more blessed than almost three billion people in our world. If you have food in your refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, a place to sleep tonight, you are richer than 75% of this world. If you have money in the bank, in your wallet, spare change in a dish somewhere in your home, you are among the top 8% of the world's most wealthy. If your parents are still living and still married, You are very rare even in the United States. If you can read this message, you are more blessed than over 2 billion people in the world who cannot read at all. If you believe in the Lord Jesus as the Son of God, you are part of a very small minority in the world and the most blessed. That's a great reminder of how blessed we are as the people of God and people who live here in the United States. I want you to know and to remember Psalm 103, verse 2 says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth 
Because they have been blessed, and he's reminding them how blessed they are. They have been blessed abundantly. They have been blessed financially and spiritually. But he's also reminding them of a gift that they generously were pledged to give to the Jerusalem church, but they haven't taken up the offering yet. And it's been a whole year, and they've never taken up the offering. And Paul is telling them and encouraging them with two examples. Two examples to encourage them to give and to give generously, and to give joyfully. I pray that today, as we listen to God's word, that we'll do the same. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I would ask right now, in Jesus' name, that you, you would be the preacher, and that you wouldn't just stir us, but that you would change us. Lord, that you would not allow us just to be hearers of your word, but we would be doers of them. We would do what you're asking us to do today. For Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Before we begin, I just want to take a moment and help us understand why we're spending so much time for the next four weeks talking about giving. See, what we're really talking about is stewardship. Can we say that word together? Stewardship. I want to give you the biblical basis of stewardship and then define it for us. Because I found, when I was growing up in the church, people would get up and talk about it, but I had no clue what they were talking about. So first of all, let me give you the biblical basis. Did you know that Jesus Christ taught 38 parables in the New Testament? 38. Did you know 16 out of those 38, he talked about money and possessions? Did you know this? Did you know the Bible devotes close to 500 verses on prayer? Less than 500 verses on faith, over 700 verses on love, but over 2,000 verses on money and possessions? Why do you suppose that the Bible and Jesus talked so much about money? Because God knew that we couldn't serve two masters, that we would either love one or hate the other. And Jesus knew that there was one thing that could get in between us and him, and that was money. So if Jesus in the Bible talks so much about money and about possessions, then we as a church, we need to spend time talking about that. So as pastors, if we're truly going to teach the Word of God, if we're truly going to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God, we need to teach about stewardship. So what is stewardship? Let's define it. Here it is. Stewardship is the understanding that God owns it all. He chooses to give us resources that we are to manage, and according to how we manage those resources, we will be rewarded in heaven as well as on the earth. So in other words, God is the owner, and we're the managers. And we're going to be accountable to how well we manage, and then we'll be rewarded. If we manage well, we'll be rewarded. If, we're not, if we don't manage well, we won't be rewarded. In Proverbs, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, there's a parable called the parable of the talents. It's found in Matthew 25, verse 14 through 30. And it's a perfect example of what we mean by stewardship. And Jesus is talking about this parable, and he gives this example. He says that there is a master, an owner, and he has three servants. And the first servant, and talents are money. And the first servant, he gives five talents. And the second, he gives two. And the last, he gives one. And he says, now you manage. I'm going away. I'll come back. And the first two, they double their money. The last one, the third one, he stuck the talent, the money, in, the, in a hole in the ground, pulled it out, and gave it back to his master. The first two were rewarded. The third was extremely disciplined. 
So God takes it serious about being stewards. Stewards of our money, of our time, and our talents. Because this is something that he's given to us. And we are to manage it. And we're to, be, we're, to, and we're to do it in such a way that it brings glory and honor to his name. And that it moves his mission. That it completes his mission on the earth. So, as we understand that, let me help you understand this, though. You, never really under, you really never really become a joyous giver until you understand that God owns it. And that we don't. That, he, that we are managers. Listen to what David says in 1 Chronicles 29, 14. It says, but whoever, who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generous as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. In other words, David understood that God gave him everything. So whenever David was giving to God, he was just returning to God what God had already given to him. Once we understand that God is the owner, then we can begin to truly give. But if we start to think that we are the, are, we are the source of all that we have, that we are the owners then we are going to continue continue to be in conflict with God. Until we settle that issue of ownership, we're just going to continue to be in conflict with God and we'll never really be joyful and we'll never be thankful about the opportunities that we have to give to the Lord. So let me help you with an illustration that really helped me to understand that God is the owner and I'm not. True story about a friend of mine who took his son out to McDonald's. I've told this story many times, but it really helps many of you, and maybe some of you haven't heard this, but he took his friend out, I mean, he took his son out to McDonald's, and he bought him a Happy Meal. He bought himself a cheeseburger, and they sat down, and the son took out the cheeseburger and the french fry and the Coke and put it on the table. They prayed for their meal, and then they began to eat, and they began to have a conversation, having a good time, and during that conversation, the father reached over to grab a french fry from his son. And his son immediately put his arms around his french fries, pulled his fries up to his chest and said, Dad, these are my fries. Get your own. And the father just looked at him and he said to me, I was amazed at his statement. My son quickly has forgotten that I'm the source of those french fries. I was just at the counter and I paid for all those fries. I'm the source of those. And then the second thought hit him. And my son has no clue, apparently, that I have the power to take away those fries, and he can't do anything about it. I can just snatch him up, and that's it. Then he had another thought. The third thought is, and my son doesn't have a clue that I really don't need his fries. I don't need them. I have enough money in my pocket that I can go over and buy enough fries to cover him in fries. I have enough money in the bank that I could take the money out and buy the McDonald's that we're sitting in. See, my son, I, he, I did, he said, I couldn't believe it, that he couldn't understand that I didn't need his fries. But what I did need him to understand, I just needed him to be willing to share with me what I've already previously, previously given him. That was the point. And when I heard that story, I thought, wow, that's it. God owns it all. And I need to manage If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. If not, I'll quote it for you. But Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's workmanship. What's that mean? In other words, God created you. God is the creator, we're the creation. God created you. He used your mom and dad to make you, but God created you in your mother's womb. So he's given you life. He's given you physical life. 
But then it says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, was raised again for the dead. And those of us who transfer our trust from ourselves to him, we are born again of the Spirit, and God gives to us eternal life. So God gives us physical life, and God gives us eternal life. He gives us everything. And we didn't earn it or deserve it. It was given to us. And then it says, for, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, God knew you before he ever created the heavens and the earth. So he chose you. He chose you for such a time as this. To be alive in this generation, you could have been born in the 1400s, 1500s, the 1800s, but you're sitting in that chair looking up at me because God chose you for such a time as this. And he's the one who gave you your talents. He gave you your abilities. He gave you your mind. He's given you everything. So when you go to work, you go to work and what happens if you take those talents and your time and all that you've got and you hone them down, you're going to be rewarded and you're going to be blessed financially. But we never can forget who gave us our life, who gave us that talent, who gives us the breath to breathe to live. God gives it all to us. And he says to us, I want you to give. Why? Because there's a mission. There's people out there in the world who need to hear about Jesus Christ like we did. There's people of great need all around us. And God doesn't like it that the government is trying to take over his job, by the way. He wants the people of God to step up, and the only way that's going to happen, listen to me, nothing moves without prayer, leadership, and money. And God understands that. That's why he set it up that way. But he understands that we as the people of God, and what he's saying, as you give it back to me, you're just returning what I've given, I will bless you. I will reward you on earth as well as it is in heaven. That's called stewardship. We're not just talking about money. We're talking about your time, your talents, and your treasures, and how well we manage them, that what we do really advances the kingdom of God. That's the question. Are we living in such a way that what we do advances the kingdom or the secular agenda that's all around us? And the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, boys, down there in Corinth, give. Give generously. This is what happens. Now that we have that hopefully understood, one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth is because they've been unbelievably blessed financially and spiritually. And the church in Jerusalem is absolutely suffering. And he says, your brothers and sisters are suffering in Jerusalem. Would you take up an offering? And they said, yes, we'll take it up. But they haven't collected it in a whole year. So Paul writes in verses 10 and 11, this is what he says. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. So he addresses that issue right here. Now to really understand the impact of what Paul is saying. We need to go back to how the Corinth church began, how it got its start. After the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church began. And it started in Jerusalem. The first Christian church was the church in Jerusalem. 
Now, thousands of people came to Christ through the work and the witness of the apostles, the disciples of Christ. And the church was growing and people were selling things, people were giving so that there were no need among the believers. And the church was prosperous. I mean, they were just loaded with cash, folks. So they started the missionary movement that God asked them to, to start. Remember what he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in, in Judea, in Samaria, in the outer parts of the world. So they knew they had to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to the world because they had not heard about Christ. So they started the missionary movement. And the first two guys that they sent out were who? You know, Paul and Barnabas. And they sent those missionaries out, and this is where they went. I'm going to show you a map here, okay? This map will kind of help you to, talk, to see where we're at. You see up on there on the left-hand side, you have, you have Berea, you have Thessalonica, and then you have Philippi. And those three churches were the churches called Macedonia, the churches of Macedonia. There were three of them. Then when you go down on the left-hand side, you see Corinth. And that's what we're talking about today. And Paul started all these churches. Now, the Jerusalem church was the financial engine of this missionary movement. They were putting out the cash. They were sending out the missionaries. And all these churches were established. And now, after many years, they were well established. But the Jerusalem church was in hard times. Why? Because they were being persecuted. And now there was a famine that blew in. And they were not only being persecuted, but they were starving to death. Now you have to understand, these are the brothers and sisters of us as the family of God. Like you know that, right? We're all part of the family. You and I are brothers. You and I are sisters in Christ. We're part of a family. And by the way, we're going to spend all eternity together. So we better get used to each other. <laughs> so we're a family. And they understood that in Jerusalem. And so did the church in Corinth. And Paul sees that this is happening. So he goes to the daughter churches, the mother church, Jerusalem, and he goes to the daughter churches, and he says, listen, I want you to take up a love offering so we can go meet the needs of those people down in Jerusalem. And the Corinth church steps up, we'll be first, and they give a little gift, but then they promise this huge, generous gift, and it motivates all the other churches. But then something happened. Inside the church, there were some people who started saying, oh, Paul's just padding his pockets. He's taking up the money for himself. And he's a Jew, you know. He's part of that church back there. See, we're the Gentiles. He doesn't care about us. He only cares about the Jews. So they started having these accusations about the pastor, about the missionary. So there's a number of letters that were sent out, a number of meetings, and finally Paul was cleared of all these slanderous accusations. And then he sends out the second letter. That was in the first letter. First Corinthians, then you have second Corinthians. And he writes back and he says, now it's all cleared up. You know this, what those people were saying were, was not true. So now are you going to take up this offering? Now we're where we are. And he says, you know what, I'm going to give you two examples. I'm going to give you the example of the churches in Macedonia. Let me tell you what they did. They are absolutely dirt poor and everybody knew it. I mean, the word in the scriptures talks about they were like almost the homeless that you and I meet in the city of Pittsburgh. That's those people right there. And they gave out of their poverty. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about them in verses 4 and 5. This is what he says. 
They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected. They gave beyond. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us, in keeping with God's will. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is this. First they gave themselves. They gave gave to the Lord. Remember when Jesus summed up the prophets in the law? He said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and might. Your entire being. Love God. Paul is saying, they gave this love offering as a love offering to God, first and foremost. They were expressing their love to Jesus Christ and what he had done for them. That's the first thing that they were doing. Second, it says, and then they gave to us. Remember, he's part of the Jerusalem church. And he's saying, so they gave to, what's the second commandment? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, they were fulfilling the two great commandments. They were loving God, and then they wanted to love their brothers and sisters because they were indebted to them. They were lost in their sin, and they're the ones who paid the freight to send out Paul and Barnabas, and now we know Christ, and we want the privilege to give back to these people. We were in need, and they met my need. I'm going to meet theirs. And they gave. After Paul explains all this, gives this as an example to them, he says this in verse 8. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. What love? Love for whom? Them? Each other? No. He's talking about the love for God. He's saying, I'm not commanding you, but I'm going to test your love for God. And how am I going to test your love for God? By comparing it with the earnestness of others. In other words, comparing it to the churches in Macedonia. He's saying, you say that you love God, and we are too. In other words, he's bringing out again the two great commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. And Paul understood this. He understood this great truth. It's impossible to love God and ignore the need of your neighbor. It's impossible. He's saying, if you really love God... I'll see it by how generous you are to your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Remember what it says over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Remember what it says over in Matthew 25, verse 40 through 45? Jesus said this. He said, when I was naked, when I was thirsty, when I was hungry, when I was in prison, you gave me something to eat, something to drink. You gave me something to wear. You visited me. And whatever you've done unto the least of my brethren, now brethren is talking about the household of faith, about us, the brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying, whatever you've done unto the least of my brethren, You've done it unto me. But whatever you didn't do to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. He's saying what 1 John talks about. You say that you love God whom you can't see, but you hate your brother who you do see. How can the love of God be in you? He's saying there, he's saying, if you really want to know whether or not you really love God, just see how you treat one another. Because how you treat one another is a perfect example, a great test to tell you how much you love me. So he says to the church in in, in Corinth, he says, 
Listen, these people are in great need, and here you sit with tremendous abundance. You say you love God. Show me by your generosity to your brothers and sisters in need. And then he says, if that doesn't help you, let me give you my second example. And he gives the greatest example of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he says in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And how did this happen? He sacrificed himself. He didn't just give his time and his money. He gave himself. Look what it says over in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And by dying on the cross, he defeated Satan, hell, death. And what he did, he completed the work of redemption. And now those of us who believe, he gives us the riches of salvation. And why did he do all this? Because he loved you. He loved them, he loved us. And he came to die for us, even though we were sinners. And he gave us life. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying, and that's what, the, what God is saying to us this morning. How many of you have seen the program or remember the program MASH? Could you just raise your hand? Remember that? I'm going to show you a picture of it. Okay, most of you, not, not all of you. Well, those of you that went around in those days, was in the 70s. That was the number one comedy in the 70s. It's like uh, Office in the 2000s. But MASH is real. I mean, that's a, that's a television program. But MASH units are real. And the letter MASH stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. And MASH units are set up close to the front lines of battle to take care of those who are wounded. Because of the vast number of wounded coming into the units, they developed a color coding system. So if you got wounded, you're a wounded warrior, they bring you into this unit, they would tag you. And there's three colors, yellow, blue, and red. Can you say that? Yellow, blue, and red. The yellow, if they tagged you with yellow, it meant that your injury wasn't that bad, wasn't that severe, so you could wait. So they'd give you a shot for your pain, and then they'd come back to you later. That was a yellow tag. A blue tag meant that your, your injury was severe, and they had to operate on you very quickly, and if they did, they could save your life. So those two tags are good. But if you got the red tag... That was bad. The red tag meant this. It meant that they couldn't do anything for you. So they just give you some morphine in order to lessen the suffering until you died. And that's the truth. And people had to make those decisions. And they would tag you, yellow, blue, or red. So here you have this mass unit. This is a true story. And a wounded warrior came in. The doctor and the nurse looked him over. And the doctor looked at the nurse and said, red tag him. Walks away. The nurse grabs a red tag, walks over to that soldier, and the soldier knew what that meant. 
She went to put that tag on his toe, and he asked her to come over. And she leaned down, and she said, yes, what do, you, what, do you, what do you want? And he looked her in the eyes, and he said, please. Please. Tell my wife and my kids and my father and my mother that I love them. Please, will you tell them? And the nurse now, with tears like sweat running from her eyes and down her cheeks, looked at him and said, yes, I'll do that. She takes the red tag, she walks over, and she's going to tag him. She can't do it. And she switches the tags. And she gives him a blue tag. Months later, a general comes to inspect the unit. And he's looking over the chart, and he begins to ask some real serious questions. So they bring in all the doctors and all the nurses into the unit. And he looks at them, and he pulls up the chart, and he looks at the chart, and he says, Who switched the tags here? This soldier right here. He should have been red-tagged, but he's blue-tagged. Who did this? Nobody dared to even speak. Finally, the nurse got enough courage that she stepped out and she said, I did. The general sits down his clipboard, looks her in the eyes, and begins to walk towards her. And nobody breathes. Nobody's breathing in the room. His eyes are fixed right on her and he walks up to her and then... He falls on her. He puts his arms around her and he just weeps. And then he whispers these words into her ear. Thank you. Thank you. That was my son. He's alive today. Because of you. What the Apostle Paul is saying to the church in Corinth and God is saying to us this morning is that we were all red-tagged, everybody. Everybody in this room, we were red-tagged. Everybody in this room, we were dead in our sin. And where we were headed, we were headed to a lake of fire. We were dead. There was no way out. There was no way to do it. But God in His mercy, and God in His love towards us, He asked His Son, He asked His Son, would you go? And He jumped up joyously, and with great generosity, He said, I'm going to give it up all, all of it. And I'm going to go and I'm going to become one of them. And I'm going to die on a cross and I'm going to be raised again from the dead. And when he did that, he changed the tags. He switched them. He took our red tags and he put them on himself. And he gave every one of us a blue tag. And when he died on that cross, the wrath of God fell upon him and he died in our place. And he paid in full all of our sin. And then he was raised again from the dead. And when he walked out of that grave, he came out and all of us, have now been given life. All of us have now not only physical life, but eternal life, because Christ Jesus was generous and did it with great, great joy. And the Apostle Paul is saying to these boys in Corinth, are you kidding me? You're not going to give to your brothers and sisters who are in need? Are you kidding me? I give you the example of Macedonia and then Jesus Christ. Tell me that you're not going to give that gift. Well, boys and girls, they anted up, and they gave, and they gave generously. Hear me. In a couple of weeks, we're going to take up a pledge. 
And what we need to do is we need to get with God and ask Him what He would want us to do because there are people in great need. And there are people who have not yet heard about Jesus Christ. And we're on a mission. And that mission we need to complete. And the reason the church does this is so that they can be good stewards. Hear me. The way they do this is to be good stewards. They're asking us, you and me, to pray, decide what God is saying to us, write that down so that they can look at what God is saying to all of us, and then they're going to look at that, and they're going to build a budget. That's good stewardship. They're going to build a budget that hopefully they'll stay in, and then we'll continue to move and make the impact that we need to make in our generation. So as you go away today, you pray, and you ask God, what do you want me to give? What do we want me to do? And do it. Because he first loved you, and you love him, and you want his mission to be completed in our generation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you and praise you for who you are. Thank you for the privilege we have of taking the gospel to so many people on the north side, in Sewickley all over the city of Pittsburgh, all over this region, all over the world. We thank you for the privilege we have. Lord, help us today to do what you're asking us to do. You won't won't ask us to do something that will put us in risk. You're just asking us to give. May we do that. Not only of our money, but of our time and our talents. For Lord, we ask these things and thank you for loving us. Help us to love one another. For Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.